0: well good morning i'm going to be uh, talking this morning about responses to the crucifixion and uh, so i'm going to start actually with the text Um, it's going to be at luke 23 verses 26 to 43 it's a slightly long passage but bear with me i will read through it as you follow As they led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now two other men, both criminals, were also led out Uh, with him to be executed and when they came to the place called the skull there they crucified him along with the criminals one on his right and the other on his left and Jesus said father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing and they divided up his clothes by casting lots the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him they said he saved others let him save himself if he is christ of god the chosen one the soldiers also came up and mocked him they offered him wine vinegar and said if you are the king of the jews save yourself there was written notice above him which read this is the king of the jews one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him aren't you the christ save yourself and us you will be with me uh, in paradise. So let's pray. Father, we ask you to give us fresh insight into this very dramatic passage. Show us uh, the crucifixion in a new way that will have deep meaning and lasting meaning to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, It was during the Great Depression in the United States and a man by the name of John Griffith has traveled out from the southeast looking for work, and he headed west, and he wound up finding this great job uh, operating one of the great railroad train bridges that span the mighty Mississippi. It was just John Griffith, his wife, and their 8-year-old son, Greg, and it was a good job. Uh, especially for the time because they were able to live in the wheelhouse have their meals and they could fish on the river it was uh, a great job for John to get and on one beautiful um, sunny day he and uh, his son climbed down out of the wheelhouse went across the catwalk sat down and looked out over the mighty Mississippi just enjoying each other's company watching the the ships, it was one of those days when father and son just seemed to grow closer together without even speaking words. And they don't know how long they sat there, the time just seemed to slowly creep and then all of a sudden uh, there was a whistle in the distance and John Griffith realized with a fright that the Memphis Express was on his way that he and Greg had been sitting out here not for minutes but for more than an hour and panicked Uh, he knew he had to get up and lower the bridge so that the train could pass and so he instructed his son to stay put and he tried to sound as calm as he could and he jumped up he ran up the uh, catwalk and climbed up the steel ladder into the wheelhouse to grab those giant levers. And first, as he had been trained, he looked out on the river and saw that there were no ships immediately in the vicinity, so it was safe to lower the bridge. But at the same time, he looked, and there he saw Greg. Greg had not followed his instructions for some reason, had instead followed his father, and had fallen into the great cogs and so now the father had a choice to make. If he lowers the bridge to save the people on the train, his son will be crushed to death. Let's take a look now. If, if, if you're in your bulletin, you will see on... Uh, I'll come back to that story, but... You'll see on page four uh, the outline. And the first heading on my outline is, and this is all about the responses to the crucifixion. And here I want to start off by looking at the responses of the soldiers, because it tells us in verses 36 and 38 that the soldiers came up and they mocked Jesus. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And the word in the Greek that is translated here, mocked him, it is translated to toy with, to play with. You know, you've seen cats play with a, a little ball of yarn. They were toying uh, with Jesus. Now, these soldiers had the usual contempt that the conqueror-occupier has for the defeated people in general. There was this heightened sense of uh, superiority. But there, there are other things that are going on. It is the nature of people to look down on others in order to elevate themselves. I mean, wealthy whites in the South looked down at poor whites, poor whites looked down on blacks, and blacks looked down on Indians. I mean, it's all crazy. But here the uh, conquering Roman soldiers are looking down on what they would consider to be uncivilized, uncouth, uh, religious fanatics collectively called the Jews. But there's something else going on. These soldiers had heard about what had happened to the temple guards when they had arrested Jesus just the night before. If you will recall that that section, I think we preached on that about two weeks ago, when the temple guards led by Judas came into the Garden of Gethsemane to confront Jesus, and Jesus stepped out and asked, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus, and and he replied, I am he. They fell to the ground. And the word in the Greek there means they threw themselves down, which is understandable given all the things that Jesus had done. Some of these temple guards, not these same ones, had been sent out by the chief priests earlier to arrest Jesus. And they came back empty-handed, and the, and the chief priests asked, well, what happened? And they said, well, no man ever spoke like this man. So now when they send out this group to arrest Jesus, and it's got to be about 50 of these temple guards, they don't send those lowly, impressionable temple guards. They send the top dogs in the temple guards. And these are the ones who threw themselves down when Jesus identified himself. And let me tell you, that story, you know, went throughout the military compounds in Jerusalem. So here are the tough Roman soldiers and they are going to show everybody, the temple guards, the other Roman guards, everybody, that they are not intimidated in the least by this Jesus. So when Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas, these are the ones who slap him and mock him and spit on him because they are going to show everybody that they are tough Soldiers, not the impressionable, weak-kneed temple guards. And this is particularly so because it's the Passover holiday. Now, Jerusalem normally would have about 200,000 people in and around the city. But when Passover came, the biggest celebration in Jerusalem, it would swell to over 2 million people. I mean, it was wall-to-wall people. And so they are going to demonstrate to this insurrectionary people, this is a people prone to rebel, prone to cause trouble, that uh, Rome is the new power in town. Rome is not Egypt. Egypt fell, Rome will not fall. So there is a particular viciousness to their mockery at the cross. It is not just hardened soldiers having sport. It is hardened soldiers having sport and making a point to the Jews who are passing by. And what better way to show both your superiority and your contempt than to take their Messiah and make him the brunt of cruel mockery. In a correlative passage from Matthew, it says the governor's soldiers, that the governor would be Pilate, Pontius Pilate, took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him, and they stripped him and put on a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. The point is that their contempt and sense of superiority blinded them to two important facts. One, they desperately needed a savior. And two, the savior was in their midst now just several hours later after the scene that we see here it says this with a loud cry Jesus breathed his last the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died he said surely This man was the Son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but that strikes me as a strange response. A loud cry, and the centurion says, Surely this must be the Son of God. Now, mind you, a centurion means head of 100. They did not have 100 soldiers in detail at the crucifixion but the fact that they sent a centurion to head the detail shows how important they uh, viewed the romans viewed this event at least pontius pilate and that they didn't want some incident to occur why would a loud cry produce such a response now normally that this guy presumably had participated in many death events, including prior crucifixions. And normally a person dies in part from extreme exhaustion over a long period of time being crucified. Their diaphragm collapses. They are unable to take in the quantity of breath they need in order to live, and this wears them out. And they die from suffocation and exhaustion. It takes days for this to happen. And most of them die in an unconscious state because they have been deprived of less, uh, they have been deprived increasingly of oxygen over time. They, They pass out and they die. Here Jesus says with a loud cry, and we know from John that the words he said were, it is finished. And that loud cry is a call of joy and victory. It is not a cry of despair and loss. This is what strikes the centurion. He's seen men die under this circumstance, and if if they, It's just a quiet whisper and they're gone. Jesus shouts out. That means he's shouting with strength. But he's also giving the shout that you would give if you have just won the battle. You've seen some of these movies like Braveheart when the soldiers win and they go, yes! <laughs> it is finished! I mean, it was a striking event. We can read this passage and lose the drama of it that is why the centurion says, my God, he is the son of God. So what about you? Let me ask you, are you blind to the same things that afflicted the Roman guards? Do you fail to see that, one, you desperately need a savior? And two, that right here today the savior is in your midst? Perhaps you, like the Roman guards, have the illusion of position and security. Maybe we can make a movie like Religulous because we don't need a savior. Or maybe you could be like the one centurion who says, surely this man was the son of God. The key is that our response to this crucifixion determines how we spend our eternity. So we look to the, the next group, and it's the onlookers and the rulers. And it says something very interesting in verse 35. The people stood watching. And that word watching is they are really giving attention to what is happening on the cross. Um, and there are, they are, what's the word, gawkers? They're transfixed. It's like somebody said, hey, Lady Godiva is coming down Broadway. And they're standing there looking for Lady Godiva. Now, they've heard about all these miracles that Jesus has done, and they're watching to see what he will do. They are transfixed by the scene of horror. And when I read this, in preparation for this sermon, immediately, a, a scene immediately came to mind from my youth. It was seeing a photograph of a man in the South, a black man in the South, who had been burned and hanged. And there were a crowd of people around him. And if you had cut out the middle scene that didn't show the hanging, you would have thought the people were at a picnic. They were dressed in their Sunday clothes. They were smiling. They were laughing. And it, and the, but when you look in the middle, there's this charred body hanging from a tree by a rope. They were transfixed. That is what the gawkers here were doing. Um, it says in another correlative passages, those passing by, meaning the onlookers, were hurling abuse at Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and repeal it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now remember, Golgotha is near one of the few entrances to the city of Jerusalem. So with this throng of two million plus people coming in to celebrate the Passover, literally thousands of people are passing by the scene and it's kind of a festive atmosphere believe it or not and then reading the from the next passage in matthew it says in the same way the chief priests also along with the scribes and elders were mocking him in the same way saying he saved others but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down for the cross and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now what is interesting here is that the rulers took their, took their cue from the passers-by. Remember the, the, the common people had been to this point a restraint on the leaders the 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 leaders wanted to kill jesus a lot earlier than the passover for example this passage from luke 20 19 the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them but they were afraid of the people luke 22 shortly before this scene Now the feast of unleavened bread called Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. But now here we are in Luke at verse 35, it says the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others, let him save himself if he is Christ of God, the chosen one. Now they have no restraint. The people are walking by on the way into Jerusalem, wagging their heads and mocking Jesus, and now the rulers know that the atmosphere they wanted is here. All the venom that had been pent up, all the studied ambiguity about their treatment of Jesus. Well, is he the son of God? Well, you know, I don't know. Maybe he is, maybe he is. All of that ambiguity is gone. The venom spills out without restraint. And this is even more painful than the uh, conduct of the guards. These are the rulers of the temple, the learned theologians of the day. So let me, let me give you a principle to think about. Other people can wrongly lead you away from Jesus. But God's spirit will guide you to Jesus. Let me ask you, what is leading you away from Jesus Christ? Let me ask the question a little differently. Are you leading people away from Jesus Christ? Are you resisting the spirit of God who is leading you to Jesus? You've heard the statement, which is, generally given in rebuttal to the alleged exclusivity of Christianity. This, th- this argument. Well, it doesn't matter what religion you study because all roads lead where? To God. But see, that is stating the problem, not the solution. We I mean, the Bible tells us that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It is true. All roads lead to God. The question is, what happens when we get there? I mean, that's the obvious. Yes, I know. What happens now that you stand in front of God? Well, we turn now to uh, the two thieves. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is crucified between common criminals who say, we deserve to be here. We we did it. One on his right and one on his left. And they both started out railing, that is hurling insults at Jesus. But over the course of the hours since the beginning of their crucifixion, they heard and saw the following. Jesus, while being nailed to the cross and lifted up, says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The Roman soldiers are casting lots for Jesus' clothing. The gawkers are coming and hurling insults at him. The otherwise dignified rulers acting like common thugs hurling insults at Jesus. Jesus had refused to take a sedative to ease the pain. The criminals took the sedative. Jesus refused to take it. The Roman soldiers mocked Jesus. The Roman soldiers divided his garments. And both thieves see the same events but the Spirit of God is obviously working on one of them. And he knows that the response that Jesus is giving to all of these events is not a normal response. It's an extraordinary response. It is a response that more than an ordinary man could ever muster. And he has... So it says... One of them, uh, and one of the criminals who were hanged there, was hurling abuse at him, saying, "Are you not the Christ to save yourself and us?" But the other answered, rebuking him, and said, "Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong." this guy got it though he was standing condemned and on a cross justly so for the things he had done he could see by the behavior and the words of jesus that this was indeed an innocent man no man acts like this man now this is not a guy who went to bethel seminary This was what you and I would call a lowlife, a thug. And yet he was able to see what the theologians and the Roman guards could not see. So let me go back to John Griffith. He's got this terrible decision to make. If he puts his hands on the lever and draws down the bridge, the drawbridge will drop, the train will go over, and his son will be crushed right beneath him. But if he doesn't put his hand on the lever, if he saves his son, everybody on the train hurls into the Mississippi River. And so with a broken heart, he pushes that lever forward and the train is coming and it's so loud, of course, that he cannot hear the screams of his son. And when the drawbridge is fully down and the train roars across, he is able to look in the windows of the passing train. And there are people eating ice cream. There are people clicking glasses together for a drink. There are people laughing, one man's reading a book. And they are completely oblivious to the fact that he has sacrificed his son for them. They don't know. They have no idea. They go about their lives as though nothing had happened. I mean, we, we see the cruelty of the guards. We see the jealousy and hatred of the religious leaders. We see the casual mockery of the passers by on their way to Aunt Bertha's for Passover. And in this context, what adds to the misery of Jesus is who is not there. Peter's not there. Andrew, Nathaniel, none of them are there. His mother's there. And his John is there. All the other disciples are gone. You know, we look at uh, John Griffith. The worst day in his life was unplanned unexpected if john could rewind the tape from that day he would not have walked down across that catwalk with greg and looked out at the great mississippi that day he would have done everything he could to avoid this day it was an accident he had not foreseen but not so with the crucifixion. This was the determined plan of God so that people who would by right crash into the Mississippi could live. So Jesus was born and he was constantly telling his disciples for this reason, I have come and it says at one point that he set his eyes toward Jerusalem. The crucifixion was his purpose for being here and so determined was Jesus to die for you and me to take our sins upon himself that he grew from a seed the tree on which he would be crucified and nurtured from the womb the very men who would nail him to the cross. How can we ever ask, does God love me? Does he care? I'm going through troubles in my life right now i don't have a job i'm struggling with an addiction my friends seem not to like me anymore i just got word from my doctor that uh, the diagnosis is bad god do you love me the circumstances of our lives are typically ambiguous We cannot look from our circumstances and tell that God loves us. Yeah, if we got that fat job and we just got a a bonus, we say, God really loves me. But if we've lost our job, we don't normally say that. Or if we do, we say it with a sense of, yeah, I, I know, I know, God loves me. But see, the cross unambiguously for all peoples and for all time answers the question, does God love me and does he care? And so the issue for us is are we the people on the train, clicking our glasses in celebration, calmly reading a book or having dinner, oblivious to what God determinedly did for us? Let's pray. Father, we... uh, just so amazed that you purposed with your son that he would die for us and take upon himself all our sins in order that we would be saved what a wonderful thing you have done for us cause us to properly reflect on and respond to the cross in a way that pleases you and your dear son amen